It's said, isn't it, that the true story of Jesus, which is the, the story of the whole Bible, is the greatest story ever told. And, and we know that's true. It goes without saying. It concerns the salvation for a lost, desperate humanity through the incredible work of Jesus Christ. What could be greater than that? But in another way, it is the greatest story ever told, purely for its drama. And for those of you who haven't read the Bible all the way through, maybe, I implore you to read it. It is not a boring read. It is full of intrigue and suspense and romance and devastation, betrayal, victory, defeat, to name but a few themes. And as the greatest story ever told, as C.S. Lewis always used to say, it makes sense that from this story, all other stories flow. And we know what a good storyline consists of, don't we? There's usually a hero, there's a baddie, and often it ends with a victory for the hero, usually by defeat of the baddie. But a really great story, a real page-turner, will often have that moment in it before the final victory where the hero looks as if he is done. It's the moment where the baddie seems to have the upper hand. It's the moment where the hero seems to be completely outgunned. It's that moment where the question is asked, is he going to be able to do it? Is the hero going to be able to pull through? It's that moment when the reader, pretty confident until now that the hero was fail-proof, starts to have that niggle of doubt in the back of their mind. It's that moment where everything seems to hang in the balance and it could go either way. In the immortal words of Lady Galadriel from Tolkien's um, The Lord of the Rings, where the fellowship of the ring has been broken and where their leader is lost, Galadriel says to this broken fellowship, she says, the quest for good stands on the edge of a knife. Stray but a little and it will fail. To the ruin of all. And I don't think I am being unduly dramatic by saying that this is exactly where we are today in this colossal story of the Bible. And I don't think I am being overly dramatic by saying that what we are looking at today is one of the most monumental moments in the entirety of Scripture. Satan seems to have the upper hand. Jesus seems to be outgunned. And the question is asked, is Jesus going to be able to do it? Is my hero going to be able to pull through? This is where we are when we get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the suspense is ratcheted up because for the reader, this is not the Jesus that we see or we think we know, is it? For the first time, this enormous, powerful Jesus, who has stopped storms with the words of his mouth, who has raised people to life, who has driven out demons with incredible authority, who has turned tables in the temple, who has taken on the religious elite and won, who has ridden into Jerusalem not five days previously as a victor, who has made the blind see, the lame walk, the mute speak, and the deaf hear, this Jesus is now found felled to his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, distressed and greatly troubled, and talking to his father and asking, if there be any way that this cup be removed from me. 
the quest for salvation stands on the edge of a knife. And if Jesus strays but a little, then it will fail to the ruin of all. Is Jesus going to pull through? Is Jesus going to do the will of his father? Or is this just one step too far for the Messiah, God's chosen king? Well, let's take a look, shall we, as we roll with the punches of Mark's eyewitness account of this incredible moment in history. And this is point one of three today, the failure of the disciples, a promised denial. Keep your Bibles open, we'll be going through it um, fairly quickly together. Verses 27 to 31, the failure of the disciples, a promised denial. Now this passage starts off, doesn't it, on an ominous note. We've already seen Jesus calling out his betrayer in the previous few verses at the Last Supper. That's what we looked at last week. But here we read, immediately after the finish of the Last Supper, Jesus turning to his disciples and saying, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It's not looking great. Judas has left the twelve by this point to betray Jesus, and the rest of Jesus' disciples are still with him. But Jesus warns them that that's not always going to be the case. You will all fall away from me, he says. And as is not unusual with these guys, they protest vehemently, particularly Peter. Glorious, outspoken, insert foot into mouth Peter says in response, even if they all fall away, I will not, Lord. And Jesus says to him words that will later haunt Peter. Truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, is being told that he will not only desert Jesus, but that he will deny Jesus. Peter will come to say to someone in the courtyard of the temple, as he literally sees Jesus being carried away to be flogged, I never knew the man. The fellowship is fracturing. And what's interesting about this promise of Peter's denial is the fact that we don't need to get to the Garden of Gethsemane, the scene of incredible torture and wrestling for Jesus, to see just how painful the next few hours are going to be. Now look at the time scale here, and remember, if we step back a little bit, that we've been looking at the entirety of Jesus' ministry over the whole course of the book of Mark, and here, the narrative slows into real time. We're now pretty much following the story hour by hour, blow by blow, from the moment we hit Jerusalem, when Jesus passes underneath that arch on a donkey... We zoom into this final week of Jesus' life and we literally walk along with him, scene by scene, seeing it with remarkable clarity. Which means that everything is exploded time-wise, everything is highly focused on this one week. And now that we're hitting the last three days, everything is focused even more tightly. And with that in mind, notice that Jesus is now talking about things that are to happen Not in terms of the distant future, like he has up until this point. The Son of Man must suffer many things, he said. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. Jesus starts talking here about things that are to happen in the immediate sense, in the now. 
So when Jesus talks of Peter's denial, he doesn't talk of it in far off terms. He's talking about what Peter will do tonight. And think about where we are in terms of time. The Passover meal, the Last Supper has just ended. That would have started at sundown on Thursday night. And take in mind that the Passover meal, the Last Supper, would have taken several hours to eat. We are now deep into Thursday night, possibly knocking on the door of Friday morning. And Jesus says to Peter, tonight, Peter, you are going to betray me. Before the cock crows, before the sun starts to rise, you will deny me. Within the next few hours, this is going to happen. In short, Jesus is saying to Peter and to the other disciples, all of whom agree with Peter, look in verse 31, they all said the same. They all said with Peter that they die for Jesus. Jesus is saying to this close fellowship of people that the next few hours is going to be the moment of their greatest failure. They are going to be scattered and Peter is going to deny Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And that begs the question, doesn't it? What colossal event is going to bring about such a radical change of heart in these defiant disciples? What incredible event is going to upend the disciples to such an extent that they go from professing their loyalty to him to abandoning him in just a few hours? And the answer to that is in verse 27. The scattering of this flock of sheep is down to the fact that their shepherd is going to be struck. And what does that look like? Well, that brings us to looking at the shepherd himself as we look at point two. The anguish of Jesus, a prayer of distress, verses 32 to 42. What do the next few hours hold? Well, It's interesting, isn't it, that the failure of the disciples comes a lot earlier than Peter's public denial. At the time when Jesus is at his most desperate, he takes Peter, James and John and asks them to watch and pray in the garden. And they can't even do that. They fall asleep three times. They're they're utterly useless. Jesus is definitively on his own here. And then we read some of the most remarkable verses in the whole of Scripture, verses 34 and following. Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, here we see possibly for the first time in the whole of the gospel accounts of the life of Christ, Jesus at his most human If verses 27 to 31 give us a hint that something is not quite right and something terrible is about to happen, these verses show us the reality of that. And we have to be so careful when we look at this passage. We have to be really theologically on the ball because Jesus is not being disingenuous here. Jesus is not feigning fear just so he gets us on side in terms of sympathy. Jesus is God, but Jesus is fully man. 
And here we see his humanity in all its earthy reality. Jesus is truly distressed to the point of death. This is the passion narrative of the Christ. There's a reason it's called that. This language is deliberate. And don't forget, it is eyewitness testimony. This is what was being seen. That means that these are genuine emotions of Jesus. That this is a genuine prayer of Jesus. That these are genuine questions of Jesus that he asks of his father. Jesus is genuinely distraught. And he is distraught because of what is just about to happen, isn't he? We are going to witness one of the greatest monuments in history, where Jesus goes to the cross to save mankind from death. And in the light of this, Jesus actually says to his father, is there not another way? Is there not another way we could do this? Is there not another way salvation could be given? Is there not another way in which I can be spared what is going to happen? Indeed, he says, all things are possible with you, Father. Jesus is desperate. And in his humanity, Jesus, for the first time, looks into the abyss of the cross with ferocious clarity and in a sense of real immediately immediacy and questions if there be any other way. This is remarkable. And it is remarkable because this powerful Jesus, as we've said before, has never looked like this. He's never looked so undone, so anxious, so petrified. And because of that, this scene of powerful Jesus cowering in great distress and trouble makes what comes next all the more terrifying. Because what is it Jesus is actually going to face? Well, to answer that question, um, we need to see what Jesus asks for. And there are two things he prays. He prays that the hour may pass from him. And he prays that the cup may be removed from him. Now, we know, don't we, that these two things are of enormous theological significance. The hour, as we have seen through Mark, is the hour at which Jesus must die. The cup, as we have seen through Mark, and as is described in in the prophets and in Ezekiel in, 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 in terrifying clarity, is the cup of God's wrath out of which Jesus must drink. And so the anguish here in the garden is not just only because the fact that Jesus has to die as much as that does cause grief in and of itself. The real anguish here is because Jesus is going to be the object of the outpouring of his own father's wrath. And that is unimaginable. You see, we cannot get away from what the cross represents when we read this passage. Jesus is not going to die just so that he can show us an example of what a sacrifice looks like, as remarkable as that would have been in and of itself. And neither does Jesus merely die as a show of love and affection, as Romans says, like a good man who may possibly dare to die for another good man, as remarkable as that would have been in and of itself. Jesus is going to die taking on the wrath of the Father with the sins of those who will believe in him from across the entire globe, across all the ages, from every nation, tribe and language that is sitting on his shoulders as he becomes the conduit for God's anger at 
our sin and he takes it in our place. The act of Jesus dying on the cross is one of extreme, unimaginable, intense, powerful suffering. As he drinks the cup of God's wrath that was meant for me. The cross is not a trifle. The cross is not a dismissive act of a good man. The cross is not one of many ways to heaven. The cross is the son of man, God in human form, standing in my place, in my shame, in my sin, in my guilt, in my weakness, in my nakedness, taking on the forces of evil and drinking to the point of death the cup of God's awesome, terrifying and astounding wrath for incredible sin that disgusts and defies a holy God. That is what Jesus has come to do. And that is what Jesus has to become, an object of his own father's wrath. And this is exactly what Jesus is looking at. He is looking at the enormity of the cross with overwhelming clarity for possibly the very first time in his humanity. You bet he's feeling distressed. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, says of Jesus in a remarkably powerful sermon entitled The Agony of the Christ, which I think you should all go home and read free on the internet. It is incredible. He says this. This was not the first time that Christ had had this bitter cup in his view. On the contrary, he seems always to have had it in his view. But it seems that at this time, God gave him an extraordinary view of it. A sense of that wrath that was to be poured out upon him and of those amazing, incredible sufferings that he was to undergo. It was all strongly impressed on his mind by the immediate power of God so that he had far more full and lively apprehensions of the bitterness of that cup which he was to drink to the full than he ever had before. And these apprehensions were so terrible and so desperate that his feeble human nature shrunk at the sight and was ready to sink under the weight of it. This is what Jesus is facing. And if this passage today does not show us the enormity of the cross, then I don't know what does. Feel the weight of these questions on Jesus. Oh, that this hour may pass, Father. Oh, that this cup may be removed from me, Father. Oh, that there would be any other way, Father. And what is the Father's response? Astounding silence. The silence from heaven is deafening. This is brutal. Not only have his disciples fallen asleep on him, but the father goes silent on him as temptation turns on him and fear and anxiety and anguish overtake him. As Jesus stares into the abyss of the most humiliating traumatic experience in the history of the universe, as he looks upon the hour and the cup of the cross. 
boy, can we as lifelong Christians be accused of sanitizing the cross. I implore with you to sit here with Jesus for a while. Look at this man. Mark's text demands that we do that. Because our application point, which seems a bit of a trite thing to say in the light of such a scene, but it is important, is to come away with the fact that this is what Jesus goes through for you. Is that not incredible? He's desperate. He's distressed. His soul is sawn through with sorrow. He's at the point of death. Is the distress of this going to kill him before he even gets to the cross? Everyone, look at what Jesus goes through for you. Jesus wrestles with his father because of the horror of what is to happen. It's real. And with all that in mind, is the other thing we take home not the fact that we are so, so lost? Oh boy, are we in trouble. If this is the reality of what has to happen for me to be made right with God. As I see Jesus here, as I see the cross in the light of the way Jesus sees the cross. And as I take in the enormity of just what kind of payment my sin demands, am I not caught up in that? Do I not see myself truly for who I really am outside of Christ? Ephesians 2, you were by nature children of wrath. That is my status. That means I am a sinful, fallen, bereft, desperate human being that deserves God's wrath and that should be sitting in that garden, sweating drops of blood, waiting for my sentence like a condemned man, asking myself, if there be any other way, Father, may this cup be removed from me. And yet, as I look at this scene, in my wretchedness, I find that I am not in the garden. Because there was a way in which the cup of God's wrath was removed from me. And it was the way of Christ and his death on the cross. I am not the one who is sitting in the garden Isn't that incredible? And as we see Jesus sitting here in the garden, having to face this colossal task, I fully realize, maybe for the first time, that Jesus is really the only person who could do this for me. And that begs the point, doesn't it? That if Jesus does not, if Jesus cannot go through with this plan, then we are done for. Because if this man of supreme power, authority and glory that we have followed through the whole of the book of Mark cannot take this, how on earth am I expected to? And I really think that's the point here. If Jesus does not go through with this, then I have to take God's wrath on myself and I cannot do that. I cannot do that. I desperately need Jesus to do this. I desperately need my hero to pull through. And if Jesus strays but a little here, then the plan of salvation will fail to the ruin of all.
And that is why heaven is silent. Because the answer to Jesus' questions is no. No, there isn't another way. No, there isn't another person. No, there isn't a different cup. There isn't anyone else good enough or strong enough or powerful enough to be able to take the horror of what my sin demands. And Jesus knows that. And so the more remarkable moment in this extraordinary passage, if that is possible, is not Jesus' incredible suffering, but is even more incredible obedience. Not my will, but yours, he cries. In the light of this suffering, Jesus' obedience is astonishing. The lengths that Jesus has to go to to be obedient to his father, which means he does go through with it. For my sake, for your sake. The lengths that Jesus has to go to for the plan of salvation to be complete. The inconvenience and the misery the son of God has to sit through so that I may know the father. Oh, the more incredible thing in this passage is that Jesus does not fail. Jesus does go through with his father's plan. All because he is more obedient to his father than he is to his own suffering, which is extreme. Oh, that there be any other way, he says. But it is not about what I want. It is about what you want, Father. Some of the most incredible words in Jesus' entire ministry. And if we think about the major themes in Mark, is this not what humble suffering service really looks like? This is what the pathway to the forgiveness of sins looks like. This is what the striking of the shepherd looks like. The Son of Man being obedient to the Father to the point of excruciating abandonment, humiliation, cursing, judgment, and death. All because Jesus chooses to do the will of his Father. And what is the will of his Father? Well, the Father wants, and his will is, to have a relationship again with his fallen humanity. That's the Father's will. And that means that Jesus has to die. Because the enormity of my sin is stacked up against me. As he drinks the cup of his own father's wrath. Guys, I challenge you to read this and not be changed. Or at least challenged. If you're a Christian here today, I think we really need to revisit our attitude to the cross of Christ, to the suffering of Christ. If we truly grasp what Jesus actually went through for us, it would, I think, in many ways, radically change the way we view the enormity of our sin. And it's amazing that the passion narrative starts off with this woman, all the way back at the beginning of 14, who gave what she could in incredible devotion to Jesus. She gave all that she had. Surely in the light of this, that is my immediate reaction. That is my response. 
And if you're not a Christian here today, I cannot tell you how significant Jesus' death is to your life. No one has done anything remotely on a par with what Jesus has done for you. Especially in your state as being children of God's anger because of your sin. He's done this for you so that you can accept him now. Also that you may know God and have a relationship with him for that is God's will. And as we move on in this passage in the light of this thunderous event and in sharp cutting and rude contrast, we see the utter uselessness of the disciples. Oh my goodness. They can't even stay awake. As Jesus is tempted to buckle under the weight of the enormity of salvation and comes out utterly obedient to the Father and utterly sinless, the only thing the disciples have to fight with is sleep and they fail. What a contrast. It's obvious, isn't it, that we are the disciples. What do we offer to our own salvation? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. All we are good for is sleeping. That's it. We'll not desert you, Jesus. We'll die for you. Goodness, I'm tired. Jesus is praying a lot. It's a bit pathetic, isn't it? But herein lies the wonderful picture of salvation. Because as Jesus is wrestling while the disciples are sleeping, we see that these pathetic men are the very people who Jesus is sweating over. Who he will die for. Who he will drink the cup of God's wrath for. And these men are pathetic, but they are loved. We are useless, but we are loved. But we cannot, we absolutely cannot read this passage with any sense of personal triumphalism. We can't. It is not on my honour that I achieve salvation. I am not lovely enough to make God love me in any other way other than because he just loves me for who he is. I am not even in the equation in terms of my acting on my salvation. I don't factor in any way as a help in this process of salvation. It is all because of God's incredible love and because of Jesus' incredible obedience. Verse 41 it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. From incredible anguish to incredible obedience, leading to incredible resolve. The hour that Jesus so fears, he accepts, not begrudgingly, but resolutely willingly he has a job to do and the tone of the narrative completely changes here and the first act of the cross is this betrayal of a close friend and this brings us very quickly to our last point this morning the failure of the disciples a present betrayal verses 43 to 52 the incredible narrative of the Garden of Gethsemane is bookended by the failure of the disciples. And, and, and it's writ through by the failures of the disciples as well. Peter is going to deny Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus. The rest will abandon Jesus. Jesus has to fight this battle 
on his own. And the betrayal of a close friend is possibly the worst thing anyone can go through, and Jesus goes through that as well. And it's not as if after reading about his wrestling in the garden, the worst is now over and Jesus is okay, and he's just got to get through the next few hours and he'll be fine. He's now got a second wind. Absolutely not. With each new scene, things get gradually worse. And the trauma of the next few hours are going to exceed everything that Jesus goes through in the garden. And that's what happens here. The brutal, callous betrayal of a close friend. And what a way to betray him with a kiss. That most intimate and faithful act between friends. I give you 10 points if you can work out who lunges for the man's ear with a knife in verse 47. Peter, that's right, obviously Peter. We know that from John's account. It's fairly bold, you might say, in the light of what's going on. It is in part, but ultimately it's a useless act. And the man who runs away naked in verses uh, 51 and 52 is almost certainly Mark himself. And if nothing else, this smacks of eyewitness testimony, doesn't it? It's absolutely not something you would make up and put in. That's pointless. But also it is a sign of just how hopeless these disciples are. There's nothing so desperate and humiliating as fleeing away naked. And and, and that's as good as we are in the face of salvation, fleeing naked. But the hour has now come. Jesus is now on his way to the cross. But before we finish, and this is supremely important, in the light of everything that we have looked at, there is one more observation to make. And that is the observation that not only is the Garden of Gethsemane scene bookended by the disciples' failure, but it is bookended by prophecy. Now, can you see that? Verse 27 at the beginning. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is a direct prophecy from Zechariah 13, verse 7. And again in verse 49 at the end. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Now, the scriptures here that Jesus is thinking of is Psalm 88, verse 8, which says, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. And this is so very important. Because as we leave this remarkable scene for the last time, we must never fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus is doing something here against his will that the Father forces him to go through. Jesus is not God's whipping boy. We have not witnessed an argument here between greater and lesser gods and Jesus loses. We must not fall into the trap of thinking that the father was caught out unwittingly by the enormity of man's sin, panicked, and was forced to play a hand that he didn't want to play, but he had no choice. Absolutely not. This is not plan B. The most incredible thing about all of this is that it is planned. And as we see Jesus here in his humanity, genuinely distressed at the thought of what he is going through, genuinely asking if there be any other way by which salvation can be achieved, we also see that he is also supremely in control. Which makes this passage all the more remarkable. Jesus knows the plan that he has put in motion from before the foundation of the earth, and he goes through with it despite knowing what it is going to cost him. 
And it makes it all the more remarkable because as we see this passage unfold, we don't read it in a sense of relief in that sense, that Jesus managed to battle his demons and come out on top. Bravo. No. We read it with a sense of amazement and overwhelming gratitude because Jesus has enacted a plan which he knew would result in him feeling this desperate for his very life. And he still goes through with it. He still remains obedient to his father so that we might be redeemed and saved from our incredible sin. No, this plan will not fail. You know, as we close, the reason that the story of Christ is the greatest story ever told is not just because it's full of drama. It's because it's true. These are the lengths that the Son of God goes to so that you may know God. He suffered in ways unimaginable. He dies under the extreme weight of God's wrath. And for those of you who do not know Jesus, he invites you this very morning to to accept him. Looking at what he has done for you, he welcomes you into his family, saying your sin has been dealt with all because of Jesus Christ. Come, have eternal life with me. And for those of us who do know him, remember we have done nothing for salvation. It is not by the sweat of our brow, it is by the sweat of his brow. And like the woman at the beginning of Mark 14, we are to give what we can and all of what we can in our lives in humble devotion to a God who has done so much so that we may know him. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, God, this is incredible stuff. And um, we cannot thank you enough for just the lengths that you go to so that we may have access to the throne of God. Lord, thank you uh, when we understand that we were by nature children of God's anger, children of wrath, and yet we are made alive in Christ because of everything that Christ has done on the cross and for nothing that we have been able to produce or do. That is amazing. Heavenly Father, I do pray for those of us who are here that know you. I pray that this would drive us to want to know you more so that we may humble ourselves in devotion to, to, to you and to your service, but also that we may go from here wanting to tell people about this incredible news. This is the greatest story ever told, and it deserves to be told to a people who are really lost and who are facing God's anger. Lord God, I pray that as we go from here, we would be changed and that we would be more in love with Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray all these things. Amen.